All right, brothers and sisters, let's open our Bibles. Take them out, if you will, with me, and let's go to the book of Ephesians, the New Testament book of Ephesians. We start a brand new sermon series today. Lord willing, we will go verse by verse through this wonderful book of Ephesians. I would encourage you to take a Bible out and look at it with me as our uh, references that I make to other scriptures will be up on the screen behind me. Our main text will not. I think it'll be helpful, most helpful for all of us to look at it in our own copies of scripture. Ephesians chapter 1, we'll start with verse 1 here in just a moment. Now, just by way of introduction, this new sermon series on this new book, Ephesians is a letter that Paul wrote to Christians in Ephesus. It's a letter rich in deep theology, but at the same time, it's also filled with practical ways that our faith should work itself out in our everyday lives. That's something that we need to have, both of those things in our Christian lives. We should have rich, deep biblical theology, and at the same time, it can't stay up in our heads, it can't stay intellectual only, it can't stay academic, you might say. It needs to actually make a difference practically in what we do. It needs to work itself out in our everyday lives. We need both of those things. Ephesians is a wonderful example of how to hold both of those at the same time. Uh, I would encourage you here right now to thumb through the pages of Ephesians with me to kind of get a sense of the whole. Uh, You will no doubt see some passages that you recognize. Uh, I think many of us might recognize perhaps Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, where it says we've been saved by grace through faith and not by works. Uh, You might recognize what I believe is probably the most well-known passage on marriage in the Bible, Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. And then I think most of you will recognize the, the last main section in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 and following that talks about the armor of God. And how we're to put on all those pieces of the armor of God. But you also see things that aren't as familiar to you. And like we said, Lord willing, we're going to go through all the verses, verse by verse, of this book of Ephesians. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on background information today. I think that stuff can be helpful. But when we come together on a Sunday to hear from the Lord, we want to focus mainly on the text of the book, right? The words of the Lord. But... We're actually blessed to have a lot of background information about Ephesus in the book of Acts. So if you want to perhaps go home today and read up on the book of Acts uh, chapters 18 through 20, you'll learn a lot about the church at Ephesus in Acts chapters 18 through 20. Just read those chapters and pay attention every time you see the word Ephesus, and you'll learn quite a bit about this place and these people that Paul is writing to. I will tell you, Paul loved this church. He planted it himself, and he loved it so much so that once he planted it, he had to leave, and he left Timothy there as the kind of lead minister. Timothy, his sort of number one disciple, he was mentoring Timothy, and he leaves Timothy there. And you can read about this in First Timothy, Second Timothy. He wants Timothy to stay and put things in order and kind of be their, their lead minister. And so he loved this church so much so that he would leave his number one disciple, Timothy, there. And today we're going to look at Paul's short introduction, just the first two verses. So let's read our text. This is God's word to us through the Apostle Paul, verses 1 and 2. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you 
and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to take this greeting apart a little bit. It might seem like there's not a lot there, but there really is when you dig down deep into it. I want to take it apart, excuse me, in, in three, three pieces, so to speak. And the first is what Paul says right at the beginning. He introduces himself. And the way that Paul introduces himself is important. He says, Paul, an apostle. Paul, an apostle. Now, first we need to ask, who was Paul? Who was Paul? Well, I'll tell you this. He wasn't always an apostle. You see, Paul was grown up and trained to be a Pharisee. A Pharisee in the Jewish religion. And he was good at it. You can tell when you read Paul's letters that he is an intellectually smart man. But he was not only good at being a Pharisee and being trained to be a Pharisee, he was what we might say zealous for for people following the Lord. But you see, Paul's idea of people following the Lord after Jesus had come was that anyone who goes after this Jesus guy, anyone who starts following the teachings of this Jesus fella, they're walking away from the Lord. They're denying the Lord. They're blaspheming the Lord. That's what Paul really believed in his heart. And so he started persecuting those people. He thought he was doing the Lord's work. He thought he was doing work for God. He's going to go take everybody who is not following the Lord and is going after this Jesus guy, everybody who's not following God, I'm going to go get those people and make sure they get in trouble. And so he was arresting people. He was making sure that people weren't able to worship like they wanted to. He was even there giving his approval when Stephen was stoned for his faith in Jesus in Acts chapter 7. He was overseeing the proceedings of stoning a man to death for his faith. And Paul was on the way to arrest more Christians in a place called Damascus when Jesus got a hold of him. Jesus appeared to Paul. In a light that blinded him. And Jesus spoke directly to Paul and told Paul that he had chosen him to be his special messenger, his special mouthpiece to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And that is how Paul became an apostle. You see, Paul is not a a normal apostle. The normal apostles were the twelve The 12 that went around with Jesus for three years during his ministry. You might think of people like Peter or James or John. They were with Jesus. They spent time with him. They became friends with him. Jesus taught them. And Jesus directly, face to face, in person, commissioned those guys. And when he commissioned those guys, he told them, especially right before he died in that upper room, he told them, you will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses. You will take the gospel out. You will even write down my message and pass it along. And the Holy Spirit will make sure you write it down accurately. And I will give you miracle working powers. Jesus gave them powers to work miracles. Why? Because it would authenticate them as God's approved messengers in the eyes of those to whom they were going to preach. And so that that was the normal way that Jesus commissioned an apostle. Paul was totally abnormal. See, Paul didn't meet Jesus while Jesus was here on the earth. Paul didn't walk around with Jesus. And at this point, when Paul is on that road to Damascus and Jesus appears to him, Jesus has already died, resurrected, and ascended back up into heaven. He commissioned Paul as an apostle in a very unique way. And so you've got the 12 apostles and you've got Paul, a very unique apostle. He will even say in the book of Galatians, he's one untimely born. And that's what he means. He's a very unique apostle. 
But when he says that word apostle, know this. It's important for us to know this in our modern times. There are no more apostles today. The apostles were in a category all their own because they were commissioned directly by Jesus. They were the guys that Jesus said, you're going to write the scriptures. You're going to have miracle working powers. Jesus is not doing this to anyone today. He is not commissioning anyone face to face. He is not giving you miracle working powers. And you will certainly not be writing another God inspired book of Holy Scripture. We are not apostles today. The apostles were in a category all their own. However, there are still disciples. There are still disciples. You ever get confused about the interchange of those words? Is it 12 apostles or 12 disciples? 12 apostles, 12 disciples. We, we, we use it all the time. We say them interchangeably sometimes. Well, all of the apostles were disciples. All a disciple is, is a follower and a learner. You see, every disciple is not an apostle. But all those apostles were disciples. Every follower of Jesus is a disciple. We are disciples. We're not apostles, but we are disciples. And while we will not write God-inspired books of Holy Scripture, we are charged with taking the gospel of Jesus out to the people of the world. We are still charged with that. You will not get miracle-working powers to authenticate you as you go out. That would be nice, wouldn't it? You'd gain a following. No, we are charged with taking the gospel out in normal, everyday conversation and sometimes being rejected, sometimes being laughed at. But we are charged as disciples. Paul says, this very same Paul, says in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that we have been given a ministry. We are ambassadors for Christ. And our ministry is to go tell people how they can be reconciled to God through Jesus. That's what we're doing. That's our ministry. We've been sent out to tell people how they can be reconciled to God through Jesus and through his death. And so we are not an apostle like Paul. Paul is an apostle in a category all their own, but we are disciples. But I want you also to know that Paul is writing this letter from prison. He's writing this letter from prison. We know that because we read it in this letter. He talks about it in chapter 3, verse 1, or chapter 4, verse 1, or even in chapter 6, verse 20. He is writing this letter from prison. He wrote numerous letters in the New Testament from prison. You can even read about how he was being held in Rome in Acts chapter 28. But even though he is in prison, he is not wallowing in despair. He is not writing letters like, you guys need to do everything you can to figure out how to break me out of this place. He is not ashamed of his chains. He is not ashamed to teach with authority while he is in prison. Because Paul knows he's in prison for boldly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the will of God that he is in prison so that God could bring more people to himself. And one of the lessons that we need to take from that is that if we are going to be disciples of Jesus, we must share in Jesus's sufferings, just as Paul is doing. If we're going to be a disciple of Jesus, we must share in his sufferings. Paul writes on this theme numerous times in our New Testaments that we must share in Jesus's sufferings. It's a special theme in the book of 2 Timothy, which Paul also wrote from prison. We must be willing to suffer with Christ if we're going to follow him. Take up your cross. What does that mean? 
Well, think about what a cross is. Jesus says, you want to follow me? You take up your cross daily. A cross is an execution and torture tool. So to take up your cross means to willingly share in Jesus' sufferings as you follow him in his footsteps. In places like Romans 8.17, this very same Paul wrote, If we are children, children of God, then we are heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. You are children of God, and you are heirs of God, receiving an inheritance from God with Jesus, if, though, it's a big if, provided if you suffer with him. You must suffer with him to receive this inheritance. Paul says something similar in 2 Timothy 2.12. He says to Timothy, Timothy, if we endure, we will also reign with him. It's the same thing. If we endure, if we share in his sufferings, we will reign with him. To follow Jesus, we must share in his sufferings. Paul is a wonderful example of that. And so Paul says, Paul, an apostle, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And I want you to see this phrase right here. Verse 1, he says, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. To the saints. Now, what do we typically think of when we hear the word saint? Well, we think of some super duper holy person who has died and has been canonized into sainthood by the Catholic Church, right? So you might think of Saint Mother Teresa or Saint Vincent de Paul or Saint Francis of Assisi, right? With some really, really holy person. They've been canonized into sainthood by the Catholic Church. But that is not how the Bible uses the word saint. It is not how the Bible uses the word saint. In Christ, according to the Bible, we are all saints, And I don't mean all human beings, I mean all Christians, all disciples, everyone who is in Christ. If you are in Christ today, you are a saint. You might be saying, no, 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 no. I'm not a saint. I I know my life, right? I'm no saint. I'm the exact opposite of a saint. Well, that's exactly the kind of person that Jesus was always hanging around. Someone who thought, there's no way I'm, I'm a saint. There's no way I'm worthy to be called a saint. That's who Jesus was hanging around. That's who he gave his time to. That's who he was honoring. Don't make the mistake that the Pharisees made. They thought it was only the super holy, obedient, disciplined people who deserved to be honored by God. But Jesus was honoring tax collectors, prostitutes, poor widows, little kids. Jesus was honoring all kinds of normal, everyday folks who would not have considered themselves saints the way people use the term today. You see, this could just very well say, to the saints at Columbia Christian Church who are faithful in Christ Jesus. God is speaking to the saints today of Columbia Christian Church. Do you know the Greek word for saint is a word, the way we say it, is hagios. That's the Greek word for saint, hagios. Hagios is actually not even a noun. It's an adjective, and it just means holy. And in the Greek, what they do is they just put a, a, an article with it, and it means holy ones, right? That's what the word saint is in the Greek, hagios, holy ones. 
Now you might say, okay, but I don't feel very holy. I struggle with sin. I'm certainly not perfect. I see your your title of your sermon, John, and it says grace and peace to saints. But what about the rest of us? What about me? Right? Grace and peace to us. When it says holy ones, that's great, but I don't feel very holy. But that's not what that word means. That's not what that word means. Holy in the Bible means you've been set apart. You've been consecrated to God. If you have become a Christian, when you came to Christ and were baptized into his name, you were set apart from the world. God set you apart for himself. God consecrated you for himself. And that is why you are holy. Not because of your behavior. Not because of your obedience, not because of your track record. You are holy because God made you holy when he grabbed you, when he chose you and set you apart for himself. And that is wonderfully freeing news for those of us who say, I don't feel very holy. I don't feel like a saint. I don't feel like I'm I'm perfect. I don't feel like you could say that about me. That's not what holy means. Holy means set apart. You are a saint not because you behave like one, but because God adopted you into his family and because he calls you his child. Now, Paul and the other New Testament writers, they will consistently say things like this. You are a saint, so act like one. They'll say things like that, right? You are a saint, so learn to act like one. Learn to live in light of who you are. But think about what they're saying there. You are a saint, objectively. So learn to act like one. Learn to live in light of who you are objectively in Christ, whom God has made you. It's wonderfully freeing good news. We are not saints because of our behavior or because we have earned it. We are saints because God has set us apart for himself. You see, when we are with God and with Christ in eternity, not only will God honor people like Mother Teresa or St. Paul or St. Peter, but he will honor normal folks and tell us stories of their saintly behavior. He will tell us stories and honor people who struggled with sin, but overcame it with faith in Christ. He will tell us of people who lived with chronic pain and trusted in the Lord for strength every day. He will honor people who held on to Jesus when folks around them were making fun of their lifestyle. He will honor people who shared the gospel with someone and helped them become a Christian. In other words, he will honor normal folks like you and me. To the saints at Columbia Christian Church, we are saints, brothers and sisters. By God's calling, by God's chosen directive, by God's word, we are saints. Let's learn to live like it. We're going to learn about that in the book of Ephesians. But Paul doesn't say, hey, I'm going to teach you to be saints, and then once you do it, then I'll call you saints. No, he calls them saints right at the beginning. They are, and we are. Anyone who is a follower of Jesus is a saint in Christ, according to God's word. Finally, I want you to see verse 2. Verse 2. This is the way Paul kind of starts all of his letters off. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father 
and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. It's every letter that Paul writes. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. Now, what's interesting about this, first of all, is that we believe that all Scripture is God's Word, right? Everything in the Bible is God's Word. It's been inspired by the Holy Spirit. All Scripture is God-breathed. One of the things that means is there's nothing in here by accident. Every word is in here by the design of God. It's exactly as God wanted it to be in there. Nothing is in here by accident. It's all on purpose. So, if God put every word of the Bible in the Bible, when something gets repeated over and over again, you should perk up and be like, it's time to listen. Because God is emphasizing something. God is repeating something over and over again. God's trying to drive something into my head. This must be important. Paul says in every letter that he writes, grace and peace to you. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. Those two things. Why grace and peace? Why those two? Why not all the other adjectives uh, that come along with, with living for Jesus? Why grace and peace? I think it's because grace and peace are each of the solutions to our two great problems in life. To our two great problems as human beings. Mankind's two greatest problems are sin and a troubled conscience. Those are our two great problems in life. Sin and a troubled conscience. We are guilty before God, deserving condemnation, and we feel guilty before God, which causes us anguish and shame in our hearts and minds. Our two main problems are sin and a troubled conscience. We are guilty before God and we feel guilty before God. And the solution to those two things is grace and peace. You see, grace is the remedy for the first. Grace is the remedy for sin. The fact that we are guilty before God and we deserve condemnation. The only way to get out of that is by God's grace. It has often been said there is nothing free in this world except the grace of God. For sinners who do not deserve to be saved, but rather deserve to be condemned, God gives grace. He gives us what we do not deserve. And in fact, he loves to do it. He loves to shower his grace upon sinners and save them by his grace. Because if he does that, he gets all the glory. If God saves us by his grace and not by our works, he gets all the glory. He loves saving people by his grace. He loves lavishing his grace on people who do not deserve it. Grace is completely unfair. When you start teaching grace to little kids and they start to realize that it's unfair, it's a beautiful thing. Grace is completely unfair, but it's also astoundingly beautiful at the same time. Completely unfair and astoundingly beautiful. Because in Jesus, because of Jesus, because of what Jesus did, in grace we trade places with Jesus. And it's absolutely unfair and absolutely beautiful. My favorite seminary professor, Dr. Jack Cottrell, used to say it like this. There's two ways to relate to God. You can either relate to God through law or through grace. You can relate to God one of two ways, under law or under grace. Under law, the rules go like this. Break the law, suffer the punishment. Keep the law, escape the punishment. Makes sense. Makes sense to the world. That's the way our world works, right? You break the law, you suffer the punishment. You keep the law, you escape the punishment. You can relate to God like that under law. 
The problem is, none of us have kept his law. None of us can keep his law. And so every single one of us are in that second category, or that first category, break the law, suffer the punishment. Every single one of us are in that category. We can't get to God based on law. We can't be saved based on law. According to the law, we deserve condemnation. So that's one way to relate to God. But praise the Lord, there is a second way to relate to God. You can relate to him by grace. Remember, grace is completely unfair. Well, under grace, the rules are exactly backwards. It's completely unfair, totally backwards, doesn't make sense to the world. Under grace, you break the law and you escape the punishment. Under grace, you break the law and you escape the punishment. How does that work? If you come to God through Jesus Christ, you, a lawbreaker, can escape his wrath. If you come to Jesus through, if you come to God through Jesus, you can escape the wrath of God, even though you have broken his laws. Break the law, escape the punishment. But the other one's true as well. Keep the law and suffer the punishment. Now, wait a minute. That sounds so unfair, it's wrong. Somebody keeps the law and they suffer the punishment? That doesn't seem right. I told you grace is completely unfair, but there's only one person in that category. There's only one person in the history of the world that's ever been in that category. Keep the law and suffer the punishment. That's Jesus. Under grace, we trade places with Jesus. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21... For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Martin Luther, the great reformer, used to call this verse the great exchange. We trade places with Jesus. Jesus becomes our sin. We get the righteousness of God. We trade places with Jesus. Grace is completely unfair and astoundingly beautiful at the same time. You want to relate to God under law? Do so at your own peril. But there's grace. You can come to God and receive his grace if you come to him under the protection of the blood of Jesus Christ. So grace is the solution. Grace is the solution to our first great problem. Sin, guilt before God. But not only are we guilty before God, we feel guilty before God. That's our other great problem. We have a troubled conscience, right? And it causes us anguish in our hearts and shame in our minds. And so peace is the remedy for a troubled conscience. Peace is the remedy for this troubled conscience. Do you know what it feels like to have this troubled conscience? To know that you are not right with God and that you need to be? Perhaps some of you feel it right now. Perhaps others of us might remember what it feels like. Do you remember, if you're a Christian today, do you remember what it felt like? to be convicted by the Holy Spirit and to feel, I'm not right with God. I need to be. I'm not right with God. I need to be made right with God. Do you remember that troubled conscience? Only by coming to God through Jesus, in repentance and faith, can you have your sins washed away. Washed away. Completely, full and free, washed away. Only Jesus can make you right with God. In Romans chapter 5, this same Apostle Paul in verse 1 writes, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Paul says we've been justified. We've been made right with God. That's what that means, justified. We've been made right with God and that is what gives us true peace. That is what gives us peace. The key to having assurance of your salvation, the key to being assured that you are saved, having that assurance, knowing that you are saved, and having that peace that comes with it, the key to assurance of your salvation is actually understanding grace. If you can understand grace, you can have assurance of your salvation. How's that work? Because under grace, you don't save yourself. Salvation is not up to your own obedience. Salvation is not up to your own purity. Salvation is not up to your own discipline and self-will. If it were, we would never be able to be assured of our salvation. How would we ever know? So many religions of the world are based on this fundamental idea that if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds in the end, you will make it into whatever form of eternal life they have. 51% to 49%, as long as they outweigh, right? But there's no way to have assurance in any system like that. Because it's all dependent on you. And I don't know about you, but I know me. And I have messed up tons of times. And I continue to mess up sometimes. If it depends on me, I do not have assurance. But if it depends on God, If it's by his grace, by the accomplished, finished work of Jesus on the cross, then I can have assurance because it's not about me. It's not up to my own record. It's not up to my own performance. Understanding grace is the key to having assurance of your salvation and to having peace in your soul. You don't save yourself. Your salvation is not a result of your obedience or good works. It's a result of Jesus and his death on the cross. Will you put your faith in that? We are saved by God's grace. And God's grace to us in Christ is what gives us peace in our hearts. We're going to take some time right now to speak to God in prayer. In response to what he has just spoken to us. Each week here at Columbia Christian, we give a a time after God speaks to us through his word to where we go back and we speak to him in silent prayer. We ask everybody right now to respond to the Lord in prayer, to take a few moments to go to God in your heart, in your soul, in your mind, and to speak to him whatever response you need to give from what he just gave to you. And after a few moments of silent prayer where we're all praying individually, we'll come back, we'll have a time of invitation where anyone who needs to respond to the word publicly can do so. Let's pray right now.